I am part of the team and leading the new Anglican Church startup in Meridian. And it is an honor to be able to share this pulpit again and come back here. When Timothy texted me Friday night sharing about the accident, uh, I was more than joyed to uh, take his place and allow him to rest uh, and share a little bit of what we've been doing in Meridian at Christ the King. Right now, if you've been with us, uh, you would know we're walking through the book of Acts and we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a church that makes all the difference? What does it mean to be a church that makes all the difference to me and my faith, to my children, to my two little girls, to my wife, to my family, to our community, the community that we live in, that we live in common life. And that is actually a very common theme that runs through the book of Acts. And if you know the story, Acts starts with Jesus first opening the minds of his disciples. And it says that he opened their minds so that they understood that the Messiah must suffer, die, and then be raised again. And you would think that that was enough then for them to go on proclaiming the good news. That is the essential of the good news. But Jesus said, no, I want you to go back and wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high. And that happens at the beginning of chapter two. 10 days, they're praying 120 disciples, men and women, praying for whatever it is that Jesus meant in unity. In unity, the text says. And finally, on the day of Pentecost, this big festival celebrating the harvest as well as when God gave the covenant to Israel, to the people. And they're waiting there when tongues of fire came and rested upon them. And 120 men and women, mostly uneducated, start speaking in languages that they never knew, proclaiming the wonders of God to the people that were there at Pentecost. And the people are wondering what is going on. And Peter, just as much filled with the power of the Spirit, stands up and proclaims to them the story of Jesus, the victory of Jesus. And that's what it means to proclaim the gospel. We are proclaiming that the suffering Messiah actually didn't end suffering, but rose from the dead in victory and sits reigning at the right hand of the Father. That is the gospel and the good news. And Luke the author of Acts kind of ends, gives this beautiful ending to chapter two, this little end cap. And it's a picture of what the ideal church was in that day. It's 42 to 47. And he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And they did this daily. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the people were all the believers were together and had everything in common. And if you were with us two weeks ago, you would know that that's where we really focused on. What does it mean to have everything in common? Uh, This word fellowship for us often means to watch a game and eat pizza. But to them, the word common, fellowship comes from that word common. It means to have everything in common, a partaking, a unity. It's where we get our word community in. And so when they talk about fellowship, it's talking about living life in common unity. And we see that they did it daily. Uh, This is why I shared in that week, this is why we as Anglicans believe in the local parish, that where you live, you work, you play, you worship, that we live in community, and we do the Christian life in common unity. And many of us would be most interested, though, in the fact that it says that the apostles did these wonderful signs and everybody was in awe. We might ask, Luke, what were some of those? And he said, I'll tell you, in Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 3, and he moves on to talk about when Peter and John were one day going to the temple. It was 3 p.m. It was time for the evening sacrifice. Everybody who was there that was a faithful Jew would have been there at the temple. And so as he was walking in, he and John, Peter and John, they came about a man who was lame from birth, standing outside of the gate begging. And Peter says, and John, look at us. And the man expected money. He says, Peter, 
or sir, gold and silver we do not have, but what we give, we give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. This man's feet and ankles became strong and he jumps up praising God and enters with them into the worship of God into the temple. Now, seeing this huge commotion, a man who was lame that they've seen for 40 years, always placed in the same spot, jumping and praising God, obviously that captures the attention of many. And so many gather here and we're starting in verse 11. It says, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. They came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness, we had made this man walk? If you were with us last week, you would have heard this, this idea that I believe that God, as we live in these last days, is not winding down the movement of the Spirit of God. And that the idea to ask that God in his mercy would heal, that he could still do that today. That we believe that the same spirit of God that was moving in the apostles moves in us. And I think Peter would affirm that. Because when we look at this response, we say, oh, you know, that's Peter and John. Of course they could heal. And yet Peter's response is, you look at us as this, this was something that we did in our own power or godliness. For many of us, I think we believe that God answers the prayers Maybe even still heals, but not my prayers. Like I would never risk praying for someone to be healed of something, even if it broke my heart. And we might say, because I'm just not quite there yet. Right? I just, I, God answers the prayer of the righteous man. And I just don't know if I would consider myself righteous. I don't know if I know enough of the Bible. I don't know if, etc. And what Peter is saying is it's not because of how godly we are, it's not because of the knowledge we have or even our authority or position. It was the will of the Father who answered the plea. We just pleaded. And then he moves on in verse 13. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant. This is really striking because many of us would think that Peter at this point would have abandoned his Jewishness. And for us to ask Peter, are you still Jewish? He would say, I'm even more Jewish now. I am a full man, a full Jewish man alive because of the Messiah. And he's making his connection with his, with his audience. You handed him over, the servant that he glorified, to be killed. And you disowned him. The same Greek word is you denied him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Again, you disowned, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. He starts off saying, you denied or disowned the servant. You denied or disowned the holy and righteous one. Uh, this idea of the servant most likely comes from Isaiah 53, this awaited suffering servant. That many of the Jews at the time believed that this was Israel himself, the, the nation itself that was suffering. And yet this image of the suffering servant so beautifully matches Jesus and his passion. He says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and in his form marred beyond human likeness. 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And yet he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And it was by his wounds that we are healed. This is most likely the image of the suffering one that they have in mind. And when they talk about the holy and righteous one, this is most common, the language of God in the Old Testament. And so Peter is standing before thousands of people, many of them who may have been there yelling, crucify him, 60, 70, 80 days ago. We don't know how far after Jesus' resurrection this is taking place. And he's accusing them of denying the servant of God, the representation of God to the people and the people to God himself, and denying the Father and in the Son. That is a big accusation that Peter is lodging at these people. It's an incredibly incriminating accusation. And it's probably easy for us to think, well, I wasn't there, nor am I a Jew, and yet the text does not give a lot of wiggle room for us who have denied God himself through our life and actions. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we carry that with us, the same brokenness that these men who yell crucify Jesus that we do in our flesh. When we say, God, you are not to be my God, I will be God of my own life and rule and reign in the way that I would live. And yet I wonder for Peter, I wonder by the language he used, could he be thinking of himself in this moment? his own betrayal, his own denial, his own disowning of the suffering servant just 60, 70, 80 days ago. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was fulfilling the suffering servant image, Peter was there denying him, knowing that he was the Christ, or at least believing it at that time, denying him three times. And he accuses his audience using the same Greek word. You have denied, you have disowned the suffering one, the holy and righteous of God. Church, I believe a church that makes all the difference will be one where we in whimsome caring and compassion share the good news of Jesus, not with wagging fingers at sinners, but recognizing that we first were bearers of sin and brokenness. And that because God had mercy on us, I have the opportunity to share the mercy of God with others in compassion, in love, in urgency, as Peter shows here. I imagine Peter at this time filled with the power of the Spirit to speak these words boldly. And yet I wonder as he spoke those words of denial, if there were not tears or him choking back tears in his own voice, seeing himself in those people, 80 days ago. And I wonder for us, could we pray that God would give us a posture to speak to those in our lives that we love and we understand don't yet love Jesus, to speak love and compassion and truth in such a way. I believe we must be careful when speaking of others who don't yet know Jesus to use us versus them language. Language that puts us as insiders and others outsiders. We recognize that Jesus is merciful for all and yet not inclusive, but desires reconciliation for all. 
these men and women may have been there when Jesus had proclaimed the Son of Man first must be lifted up, referring to the cross, and then he will draw all men to him. Even those who denied Jesus before the world. And you see in his language the tenderness he has for his people. For he says, he starts off this whole thing, fellow Israelites, this, fellow, we, this, this common heritage, this common people that we live in, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. This is our Messiah. You are my people. I desire life for you. And then again, in verse 17, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders did. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. You were ignorant just as I was. We played into the plan and the hands of God that he set out before the creation of the world. The plan of the suffering Messiah to bring into order all and healing of all creation. The creator, the God, son himself functioning as atoning sacrifice and ransoming, reconciling gift to bring those who are at war with God to a position of peace with the Father. This was his plan. And now as Jesus said, he will draw all men. You and I played into his hands and now he is beckoning you and I. Peter playing into the hands of God to deny him. These men and women, God knowing what would happen, having them deny him, and now he is beckoning you. If you have been denying him this whole time, he is now calling you to him. And then Peter draws their memories back to the period of when their forefathers did not listen to God or the prophets. Through this huge era of constant denial of the prophets, so who spoke the word of God to them. And this time, the ultimate prophet, the word of God himself, the one that they were waiting for, that would be like Moses, as Moses had prophesied, would lead the people like Moses from captivity to freedom. In verse 22, he says, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is speaking this. You're, God's going to raise someone up from our people like me. Meaning someone who would lead the Hebrew people, who were just servants and slaves at this time, a nobody nation, lowly slaves, and God rose up Moses to deliver them from captivity to freedom, to enter into the promised land and be a gathered, chosen, elect, and loved people from God. He says, you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off or destroyed from the people. The result of not listening to God's anointed, to his word, to his, the ultimate prophet, the son, not heeding his call to return from separation and join the people of God, his elect people, was destruction, is what Peter is saying here. A common term for judgment. God offering everlasting life and us choosing this or judgment, death. And Peter is saying, don't let this be you. Let's not be like the forefathers who continued to deny the prophets, to deny God's word when the ultimate word and prophet has shown up. Listen to him. Be connected to him. Receive life. Follow this rabbi that was more than just a rabbi. And then he moves on to 19. We're jumping back down to 19. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out or blotted out. That the times of refreshing may come from the Lord 
and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. Yes, this Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. I think it's funny when we think about the word repent, we don't honestly think of often of something that gives warm fuzzies, right? It's usually a heavy word. And we've come from a history in the United States of a culture of this kind of turn or burn preaching and mentality that maybe at a time was used and yet for many doesn't actually represent the love and compassion we see of the gospeling, the sharing of Jesus found in scripture, coming from a, a heart of love and compassion. And yet when Peter speaks here of repentance, he uses wonderful language. First off, he says, turn, repent, turn back, turn back to God in his ways and his presence from sin so that your sin may be blotted out. Uh, this was a beautiful image of what God does to our sin in Christ. If, if for the audience who is listening to this, they would have the image of a parchment with ink and one of those old fancy pens that we could imagine dipping into ink. I don't know if theirs had feathers or not. I imagine fancy pens. And they would write on the parchment. The difference is, is that the ink at that time didn't have the acid that our ink does to bite into the paper and to, to stay like that. And so if someone wanted to blot out, they would simply use a wet rag and, and, and wet the parchment. And what would happen is this ink would go from a dried state to lifting up off the parchment and one would literally blot up and out these words. And if you did that gently and carefully enough, you would blot it, you would have or completely erased this record. And what Peter is saying is that in Christ, God in his parchment book of life, in this book that he has been recording sins and, and the thoughts and, and actions and unactions of every human individual, that in Christ he uses the blood of Jesus to wet up the ink off these pages and blot it out until it is completely gone. Just wipes it away. This is what he does. This is the promise that he has always had. In Psalm 103, we see the heart of God. So the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. I don't know if that is your image of God today, but if it doesn't match the text, it's not a correct image of the heart of God. He will not always accuse. He will not harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us, listen to this, as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. That what your actions have earned. He does not give you what you deserve, which is often th this judgment, this punishment. We in our, our postmodern society think of this idea that we're outweighing our sins with good. And this, that's an incomplete and totally opposite understanding of what the biblical writers understood. There is no way to match the holiness of the holy and righteous one. All we do is work our way into debt. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Again, just blotting out, standing clean before God. But not only is our sin removed, it's blotted out from our histories, not simply to move us from a negative balance into just, just barely making it into the neutral, just keeping out of the red, Peter says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord himself. Ultimately, these times of refreshing are when Jesus is going to come back 
to raise all and judge the living of the dead. And that, that from his presence, his people will live with him eternally, receiving life, love, and all that is needed from the presence of the Holy and Righteous One himself. But I believe as well that God in his mercy gives us a foretaste of what that looks like, what that feels like. We have David talking of this foretaste in his Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. This is a man who had enemies that literally tried to take his life, that would run away and pretend to be a madman drooling at his mouth just to save himself, that his own son would try to kill him one day to take his spot on the throne. And he has the audacity to say, because of God's mercy and grace, I lack nothing, and he refreshes my soul. There's a component that while we are in the last days, these days that from when the Spirit came at Pentecost to when we are awaiting the inauguration full of the kingdom of Jesus, that these times of refreshing are for us. That is a foretaste of what's to come. And I believe knowing the stories and testimonies of many people here, you've experienced that. Some of you have experienced exactly that. Sometimes in the wonderful high moments of life, and other times in the most difficult ravines of your life, that you would say, though I felt like dying, the presence of God was so good that I had joy. It's absurd, and yet God makes it happen. And I would say if that's not you, you would say you've never experienced that, or maybe you find yourself in that ravine longing for that, in this perturbed state of restlessness, of wanting, of parchedness, I would encourage you to seek his face. And be with him, wrestle with him in such a way in this quiet space in prayer, pleading, I don't simply need to know about you, but I need your presence in this time, Father. I plead to taste your times of refreshing even today. And I believe that in his mercy, there are many times when he grants exactly that. I do believe that God gives these moments still, and even in tr trouble and in pain. Like when Paul could say, jailed, not knowing if he's going to leave alive, to the Philippians. And he says, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Think about that. Peace of God that you're feeling, you're experiencing, it, it surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When I am in those horrible moments in the ravines, where, is, where am I being attacked? My heart? With God, do you even love me? In my mind, God, are you even there for me? And it's in those moments that God loves to show up for his children. A time of refreshing and peace that doesn't make sense. It's inexplicable. But God in his goodness and love for creation and those who would call themselves by his name, for those, as Peter would say, who would repent, to take that action of turning to him fully in joy. A certain tender caregiving to the broken individual that as sheep who have fallen into a ravine, he seeks them out, pulls them out of the ground, 
and leads them to still waters to refresh their soul. Lastly, this third piece of repentance that Peter gives us is in 24. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken, who have foretold these days, and your heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers, he said to Abraham through your offspring, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. To bring to repentance, Peter is saying, is itself to bless. It is, repentance is itself a blessing. It's a grace of God. God desires to turn us from our rebellion even when we don't want it. And I believe that is the story of so many here as well. Running from God constantly, feeling this sense of him coming after you, of, of, of seeking you out, a lost sheep being hunted down by this tremendous love of God. As one author would say, the holy hound of heaven. The prophet, or the poet, sorry, the poet Francis Thompson so beautifully captures this idea at the beginning of his poem when he says, I fled him, God, Jesus, God, the Spirit of God, down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated, down titanic glooms of cosmic fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Deliberate speed, yet majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, saying, all things betray thee, who betrayest me? All things betray you, you who betrayest me. Saying, all these things, that I've been running away from him who's been seeking me, and there's been no satisfaction in all of this. And he would say, you have been fleeting me. All the vices, sicknesses, pains, all the desires that just desire to betray you. And that which betrays you, betrays me. This call to return, don't you understand that that which you are, flee that you are fleeing from me and fleeing to destruction seeks to destroy you and is against me. Come back to me. This is a call to return. And then he would go on through this beautiful poem in talking of the story of a son, a daughter being reconciled. I believe that this is the story that many of us have experienced. This is the Father in love so aggressively by the Spirit of God drawing us from filth, from brokenness, from patterns of destruction to abundant life that Jesus is offering freely. Church, this is why we preach repentance in Jesus, because it's good. Even when our culture would say that sounds so old school, that sounds ugly, that sounds ancient, medieval, whatever, we preach repentance because it's good. This idea of turning to God and accepting his ways, his kingdom, a Jewish man or woman might say his yoke, that's good. Like that's what brings life. That's what yokes us, connects us to Jesus himself, who, who is the fountain of life. 
blotted out sins by the work of Jesus, times of refreshment to renew, to revive the soul, to bring blessing, the blessing itself of knowing him, the blessing of, of being rescued from our own devices that we so often choose. I firmly believe that while you may have been a believer for many years, just as I, growing in holiness and the likeness of Jesus, as Paul would say, the more and more I grow in my faith, the more I grow in my understanding of God's holiness, the weight and meaning of Jesus' sacrifice, and the weight of my sin before all this, I don't repent less. I repent more. Like I find comfort in this turning to God that we do weekly as we confess, most merciful God, I have sinned against you in thought and word and deed and what I have done and what I have left undone, that this itself is an act of grace and beauty and love and that we find comfort in it, knowing that God responds, restores, and refreshes his children as they seek to be connected to the author of life. Let's pray. Father, as we have heard your word from Peter's mouth, this glorious image of your son who was on the throne, who suffered for us, descended to the depths, and then was raised exalted in majesty and sits in the position of authority at the right hand of you, the Father, ruling and reigning the cosmos. Our natural response to you is to turn in worship, in repentance, and in adoration. And that, Father, we cannot do unless you give us that grace to do it. So, Father, we pray through the grace that you offer, would you give us the grace to, in true repentance, to turn to you and see you for who you are and find fullness in healing and joy and in walking in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.